It's interesting in the year of Barbie and Oppenheimer, which is almost like uh, two titles of supreme consensus, you know, that maybe the more characteristic thing about this year is exactly what you just described. These people making very divisive, unusual, polarizing movies, you know, and we're probably going to see more of those going into next year. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Danny Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. In our annual recap episode, going over the biggest stories, hits, and disappointments of 2023 for theatrical exhibition. This is one of my favorite things to do in this job when we get to look over everything that happened bring in some commentary, and I will also be bringing in some of the predictions that we had for this year back in 2022, what worked out, what didn't. Joining me today, we have Russ Fisher, editorial director of the Box Office Studios, and my colleague here at Box Office Pro, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro. Guys, let's get into the biggest stories of the year because we've got a number here in 2023 for theatrical exhibition. We have to start at the top here when we talk about the biggest trends, the biggest conversation pieces. Barbenheimer. If we look back at 2023 at the box office, it's summed up by that one phrase. Mm-hmm. On a surface level, that is, yes, the success of Barbie and Oppenheimer coming out over the same weekend, both igniting an enthusiasm, not just around movies, but around going to the movies. But I think if you, you know, you look a, a little bit deeper, you know, look at it kind of for what it indicates from a, I don't know, metaphorical perspective, it's about counter-programming, right? It didn't used to be a weird thing that two wildly disparate movies would come out over the same weekend. And I think we saw a lot more of counter-programming this year. Obviously, Barbenheimer was a huge success, uh, I think specifically for that reason, because, you know, you have people who wanted to go to one, you have people who wanted to go to both. It's just a kind of symbol of we're getting back some options. We may not have the big earners that we had, like, say, last year with Avatar 2 or or something like the Spider-Man No Way Home or anything like that, but we are seeing more films, which is something that we have we have been been crying for in this industry. Not enough. We could certainly have more films, have more quantity hit theaters. But I think this year's big win is for counter-programming, is for having a variety across genres, across budget levels. I mean, I just think to the top 10 films of, Daniel, was it 2018 or 2019? when eight of them were Disney films. I believe that was 2019, if I'm not mistaken, right before the pandemic, right? It's never a bad thing to see a lot of films make a lot of money. But I think, you know, we are seeing a little bit of an adjustment or a recalculation, maybe coming to fruition of something that we've talked about this industry needing. There's no question that that's that we need that. There's no question that the, the last, everything since the pandemic has really been marked by lack of that. I think you're underselling the value of the Barbenheimer phenomenon a little bit. I don't think it was just counter-programming. I think there are two big things there. One is that my understanding is that Mattel shouldered most of the promotional burden financially for Barbie. The point being that Mattel was very invested in making that movie work. 
and that if it were left to the studio on its own, they would not have spent that much money advertising Barbie. Barbie would not have been as culturally pervasive as it was, which is not to say there was no interest in the movie, but we know that there is a relationship between an ad spend and a movie's success. And I think Barbie very much reaped the benefit of having a very interested third party be on hand to basically write a blank check to promote that movie. So that's one part of it. But the second part is the utterly unpredictable cultural phenomenon of Barbenheimer, where it's not just counter-programming. It was people who were really into the idea of seeing those two movies specifically together because of the ironic you know, pairing of content. And that, to me, reads as a couple of things. But most prominently, it's that people still like going to the movies. And they're excited to go to something that feels like an event. And Barbenheimer felt like an event. And it's an event that was kind of created organically. You know, it's not a thing that the studios, to my knowledge, and they're, you know, colluded to create this thing. It just happened because people wanted it to happen, which is incredibly rare. It's specifically rare in the current environment. And it sort of exists almost independently of that massive ad spend. Certainly, Universal spent a lot of money on Oppenheimer as well. They're very happy to have Christopher Nolan after his long run with Warner Brothers. But there's a thing there that's very difficult to quantify. And it's it's I think it's still pretty remarkable in the context of everything that we know about what those movies did. Yeah, I, I remember speaking to Jeff Goldstein and the distribution team over at Warner Brothers on the Sunday of opening weekend. I mean, he was ecstatic. And something he shared with me was Warner Brothers Discovery had a retreat at the beginning of the year, January, February, I believe. And David Soslov sat down and said, this is going to be Barbie summer. We're going to release a movie that is going to market all levels across every single person we can. And there's something attainable in that when you say it about a movie like Barbie. The other half of Barbenheimer is a lot harder to pull off. How do you market a period drama that is essentially just dudes talking in a room about science? And, I mean, Barbie's memeable. I don't know about nuclear war. That's that. No, I mean, really, Universal, hats off on this. They were able to pull it off. Listen, Christopher Nolan is a name, but he was coming off a very divisive movie like Tenet. Let's just say it's a movie that is difficult for a general audience to grasp. I would say Oppenheimer is also a difficult film for a general audience to grasp, but there was an organic interest in watching it. It's that second half of this equation that I'm really, really impressed by when we look at that performance. And I think, like Russ said, my biggest takeaway of the Barbenheimer phenomenon wasn't really that it was about the two individual films themselves. It was the fact that people wanted to go to the movies and tell people, I went to the movies. And that just ended up being part of the discussion. It wasn't, I went to go see Avatar. I went to see Spider-Man or Top Gun. It was, I went to the movies and did this. And there was this buy-in worldwide from people wanting to participate in this. And I, I think that's wonderful. I think the entire industry wants to repeat it, but you can't box this up. It's not formulaic. And I think it's going to be hard to find a moment like this again. I think it's lightning in a bottle. I think it was a fantastic story. And all of the success that we saw in late July from these two movies coming out, we really thought we were going to turn a corner in the box office in the pandemic recovery. But unfortunately, we had two strikes from two of the industry's labor unions. Listen, there's never a good time to have a strike 
strikes happen because they need to happen, because the working conditions for people in an industry necessitate a strike to happen. And we're seeing in this shift to streaming, this shift to business models, needs by the creative community and not by the people at the top of that creative community, by the people in the middle of that creative community and below, to find a new way to make a living wage out of their work. That's what led to the conditions to the strike. Yes, it was disruptive. I don't want to paint it as like the Grinch that stole the box office. It was something that needed to occur. I'm glad it got resolved. Russ, you've been involved in the production side of working in big, big movies in the past. From your understanding, what is the takeaway right now that we're a couple of months away removed from the settling of these strikes? What's the takeaway of everything that happened in the labor disputes? That is still a difficult question to answer, to be honest. For one, it wasn't just oriented towards movies. You know, a big part of these disputes were the production of television and or streaming series, if you want to call those television. I guess it's still a little... The part of the question is, is that TV? What is TV at this point? And so those production schedules, those revenue models, the way that writers are hired to develop series, whether or not AI can be used, all of those things a lot of those big points really hit series and TV more than they hit movies. But of course, you know, both of those guilds striking and them striking simultaneously, especially, did significantly derail movies. And we're really, it's going to be a while before we see the effects. You know, I think that if you're in the industry, if you're a writer, you saw some immediate benefits because there were changes in like how you might get health insurance. There were some changes to residuals, things like that. So there's some things that people probably saw very quickly. But for the other aspects of the industry, it's going to be six months at least before we see real ramifications of the strike. You know, we don't know how it's going to affect production. We don't know if it's going to change anything on the production side, especially for theatrical features. And so, you know, it's going to be next summer, probably, before we really start to get a sense of the ramifications in full. And I mean, we're still waiting for everything shuffled. And, you know, we'll talk later this episode about superheroes and Marvel. But certainly Marvel, I think, was one of the biggest companies affected by the strike in the sense that when you have a massively intertwined set of feature films and streaming series that all depend upon one another to a certain extent, those strikes completely derailed their plans. Marvel has had to reshuffle their plans more than once. And I think that, honestly, I don't think we've seen the end of what the combination of the strikes and audience reception to those movies is going to do to Marvel. I think there's still going to be more changes to come there. Because another factor to Marvel is, I mean, this is this came at the time when they are trying to relaunch themselves sans the core, you know, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans. I mean, they needed those people to be out there able able to do that marketing. I mean, Captain Marvel made a billion dollars, but that was largely because it came out right before Endgame, right? And people were really hyped for anything Endgame related. You know, it came right, I feel like, kind of at that transition point of them uh, trying to convince moviegoers okay, you cared about Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man and you cared about Thor and you cared about these characters, but now look, we have these other characters and they're cool too and you can be still emotionally invested in them and then bam, they can't do any press. You know, it's easy to forget that Iron Man was a JV from most people's perspective when that started. 
Robert Downey Jr. was not a star. You know, that movie made him a star again. When they built Marvel, Marvel wasn't anything. You know, Captain America was not a guaranteed success. Chris Evans was not a guaranteed star. Same for Thor and Chris Hemsworth, Iron Man. All those characters, they built up from nothing, but they had the time to do it. I think Marvel needs to refocus, needs to narrow down and really look at what was appealing to audiences. And Marvel needs to make itself special again. The combination of you know issues that arose via the pandemic and the strikes And then the fact that Marvel is kind of scrambling to rebuild itself while also building a streaming business for Disney Plus and the general effects of streaming, which tell you like, hey, if you hear a movie's not great, you wait six weeks and it's on Disney Plus and you watch it on a Thursday night at home after work. Who cares? You know, all of those things together make this a very different scenario than when Marvel started. You know, this is not 2008. And so while we can say like, hey, nobody knew Iron Man, nobody was a big Robert Downey Jr. fan at the time. That doesn't mean that they're, you know, that everything else about the industry is back in 2008. We can't just completely reset the clock. But Marvel does need to reset itself. And, you know, we've seen indications that everybody kind of knows that from Bob Iger on down. And the question now is whether or not they can do it. And that was, I think, the third big thing that we had in the stories of the year for theatrical exhibition. Not only on the Marvel side, let's not only pick on Disney. Warner Brothers is also dealing with this. Superhero movies have gone from as close to a guarantee as you could have had at the box office to something that has a high floor, but a potentially low ceiling. And when we get the DC movies, it might not even have a high floor anymore. I think that's a real concern in general around where audiences are with these superhero movies. At the same time, as superhero movies struggle a little bit more at the box office, video game movies, which used to be the big challenge to crack for US studios, now seem to be getting a lot more traction. We saw Sonic bring in a new benchmark. Super Mario Brothers from Universal this year came in and is going to finish the year as the number two film at the box office. How much more potential is there to mine here, guys? I mean, I look, this is this is a big story. This is an important story. It's a positive story. And I, I want to just talk about it for, for a minute because I do think, talk about the phenomenon of Barbie and we talk about the quote unquote downfall uh, of the superhero movie. But I, yeah, like Daniel, like you said, I think it's really important that after decades of people trying to make video game movies work, finally it started to happen, really, with uh, Uncharted, with Sonic and its sequel, with obviously Super Mario Brothers coming in at number two, uh, both globally and domestically, and with Five Nights at Freddy's. And, and I think, and, and tell me, you know, if this sounds off to you, I'm certainly, you know, willing to hear other opinions, but the secret sauce that, that seems to have been missing was you needed an audience of Zoomers who grew up with these things and who had nostalgia for them. You needed people who'd grown up playing Uncharted, who had grown up hearing, oh, we're going to make the Uncharted movie happen. And then, you know, years and years and years, you know, Five Nights at Freddy's, $85 million opening for a property based on a video game that went simultaneously to theaters and to Peacock. I mean, that's not something that, that anybody predicted. And I think the story of the evolution of the video game movie is really inextricably tied in with the story 
of a younger generation of, of Zoomers and uh, the kind of crowd in the, in the 20s now and what their relation to movie theaters is, what their relation to movie theaters can be. And, you know, how I feel like they want to come to the movie theater. They want to be, you know, involved. We just have to have uh, the product there for them. And I think video game movies kind of <laughs> peaked at the right time. I think that's some of it. You can't discount the Zoomer audience, especially when you look at Five Nights at Freddy's. You know, it's clear that that's a huge, huge part of that success. I do think that a big component of it is simply getting it right and making a movie that looks like the game that you are supposedly making a movie about. I'm not going to hear any slander about the Bob Hoskins Super Mario Brothers, am I? Hey, look, it's a good movie, but it failed for a reason. It's not yeah. a good movie. It's a fun movie, but it failed for a reason. All So many other films. Completely. You know, and I think you start with Sonic, and Sonic is that thing where they did a version of Sonic that looked a certain way. Fans hated it. They redid it, which is amazing, you know? And I'm very resistant to the idea of like, oh, fans know best with these properties because I don't really believe that's true. But especially with video game movies, if you're going to make a thing that is not just recognizable to audiences, but recognizable and in a way that relies on their participation in the development of those stories, you know, games are participatory in a way that other media is not. And so there's a different connection to those characters. There's a different involvement with those experiences. And it's like... The thing is that story can be a lot of different things. And and I think even Five Nights at Freddy's shows that like you can change around the story and people are probably going to still be with you, but it's got to kind of look and feel like the game that you're purporting to adapt. Maybe the summation for uh, specifically the video game question that makes the most sense to me is the idea that when that original Super Mario Brothers movie was made, Rebecca, that you talk about... It was almost a scenario where uh, studios understood that, like, yes, there's a small little core of people that really loves this property, but we need to sell it to everybody else that doesn't know this property. And the change now is that everybody knows these properties. You know, Super Mario Brothers is a universally recognized and understood property. So you can no longer approach this stuff like, okay, there's got to be a couple little nuggets in there for the true fans, but then we can kind of do whatever we want because, you know, bigger audiences don't know these things. And that is, hasn't been the case for a very long time, but it's definitely not the case now. And what we see is, I think some of this success is coming from the fact that the people who are making these movies are really starting to internalize that very simple truth. What I think both of you guys are agreeing on is something that I'm saying from my perspective here, is that this is an industry in flux. I think studios are recalibrating a lot of their productions. I think audience tastes are maybe not changing. The IP franchise is still a thing, but it's evolving. It's it's advancing in a new direction. And we are also seeing this from a business perspective. I think one of the biggest stories in theatrical exhibition this year is just how many new faces and just how much changeover there has been in hugely influential positions. We have a new management team coming in at the National Association of Theater Owners for the first time in in over a decade. And that's a big transition within the industry. 
within exhibitors. We have new CEOs at major circuits now that we didn't have in 2019. Now, of course, over four years, that's to be expected, but you know how this industry is, especially at the top ranks. People keep these jobs for many years, and now we're in a position where there's a new CEO at Regal that wasn't there before the pandemic, a CEO at Cinemark that wasn't there before the pandemic, new CEO at Marcus Theatres, a new CEO at Alamo Drafthouse, at Landmark, at Studio Movie Grill. There's a number of major circuits with new leadership in place. I mentioned NATO already, and we're also seeing it on the supply side. There's a hugely influential tech company in this industry, Vista, that provides point-of-sale solutions for a lot, if not most, of the global major circuits. They just went through a huge reorganization within their company. There are a lot of extremely experienced executives that are not in the position that they used to be. So it's a big change right now that we're seeing in the market as a whole that's also trickling down to the people making decisions in every corner of theatrical exhibition. And that fluctuation is something that I think also adds up to where that box office recovery is. We're not back to the $10 billion plus days. Now, to be fair, if you go back to our 2023 preview episode, we never said it was going to get to the $10 billion point. If you go back to that episode, you'll hear me saying that we can expect the box office in 2023 to finish between eight and nine billion. And that's actually precisely where we're going to end up. I got that one right. We're going to finish short of the nine billion dollar mark. But it is right around where the expectations were at the beginning of the year in terms of box office. Next year might be a little bit tricky. We're going to go over that forecast in next week's episode, going into the preview of 2024. But one of those questions that we had coming into the box office this year was how 2023 was going to perform theatrically without a $700 million movie. Was anything going to get close? Now, we were wrong about that. None of us saw something nearing that $700 million mark. The number one movie of the year got very close to it, Barbie, which made over $600 million domestically. None of us predicted that. I'll go over the titles that we said might get the top movie of the year award. All of us unanimously in that episode at the end, tail end of last year predicted the top grossing domestic film of the year to be Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. That's a mouthful. That's not going to be the sequel, the continuation of this movie's title. There's a lot being retooled in the Mission Impossible franchise. Anyway, our unanimous choice for the number one film of the year, the box office, didn't even crack the top 10. Not only that, guys, we were way off. The movies that we said might be dark horses to get into the top 10, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, also didn't even crack the top 10. That was very far away from the top grossing movie of the year. And Fast X that we thought might also be a dark horse candidate to be the highest grosser of the year, at least on a global basis, doesn't even crack the top 15 domestically. Certainly our predictions were off on that front, but that no one predicted that you would have a lot of these legacy IP titles like Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, like even something like Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, which, I mean, it didn't crack the top 10, but it didn't do poorly. I think it was in large part just to become a bad timing. Like They didn't overperform. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And what we did had overperform, other films overperform when we didn't expect them to, which is... Never a bad thing, I think. Never a bad thing. And that's a top movie of the year. And to be honest, as soon as we got to CinemaCon and saw that Warner Brothers presentation, Rebecca and I look at each other from the press section and we're like, oh, this is going to be 
what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the year. When that Barbie box, when I first saw that Barbie box, people lining up for the Barbie box, like they knew what they had. Andrew Cripps and Jeff Goldstein walking into the Warner Brothers presentation at CinemaCon wearing bright, hot pink suits. That presentation of footage from Greta Gerwig, it became clear to us as early as CinemaCon that Barbie was going to be that movie that would step up, and it does. With over $600 million in domestic box office, the number one movie of the year, this is probably going to be the movie that everyone looks back on, not only the Barbenheimer conversation, but also what this movie did on its own. It's almost a throwback, a summer release with a hit soundtrack, with a toy tie-in, with like a cross, like it seemed like something from the 90s, and it was awesome, it was great. I hadn't seen it for decades. The team really threaded the needle. I mean, I remember the trailer that they showed at CinemaCon was the one where you saw Barbie ask, do any of you guys ever think about dying? And that, I mean, that trailer didn't come out widely on YouTube for I think a couple months later. And it was so neat seeing everybody come to the realization of like, oh, okay, this is going to have, you know, a little, a little bit of edge to it, a little bit of zip to it. You know, it's going to just be a little bit different than you might expect from a, uh, you know, a Barbie movie. We've had Barbie movies. They've been directed DVD. They've been about princesses. It's been, you know. The big risk was making something at this scale with a director like Greta Gerwig and a fantastic screenplay that she uh, co-wrote with her partner, Noah Baumbach. I, it's not the conventional choice for a movie like this. And I think that is precisely why this movie succeeded. It's an unconventional tentpole. I mean, I think that's really by and large what we're seeing in terms of audiences. It's not that they're alienated by big IP franchises. They just want to see something that, that they haven't seen 15 times before. They want to see something that maybe doesn't have three shows on Disney Plus that they already get their, their filling up. And that's what we saw from Barbie. And tied into that, and we already went over this, was the fantastic theatrical marketing campaign for Barbie, which I think has to be named the theatrical marketing campaign of the year. I do have to say, if we bring up an honorable mention in that category for a theatrical marketing campaign, the grassroots marketing campaign for something like Sound of Freedom, a title that none of us expected to hit the way it did, that movie did crack the top 10 in terms of domestic earners. This is a movie that came out of nowhere, released in a crowded July 4th weekend, and through word of mouth and through the support of independent theater owners and small exhibitors, and I think that's crucial to this conversation, guess what? Instead of alienating independent cinema owners, if you go to them and you work with them to give them everything possible that they need to make your film a success, they will work as hard as they can to do that, and I think that is key to the theatrical marketing success of Sound of Freedom, which I have, I have to say, for me, is the biggest box office surprise of the year. Definitely. I mean, and where did we all first hear about Sound of Freedom? We heard about it at CinemaCon. Once they made the decision to release it on July 4th weekend, they said, we're going to play this trailer during one of the lunches. You know, they really showed from, uh, from, from the get-go that they wanted to uh, be hand-in-hand -hand, uh, with cinemas, with cinemas on the release of this film. I mean, I, it feels a bit disingenuous not to at least mention that there was some controversy following the film with theaters catching some flack from, you know, on social media, uh, certain people who saw the film kind of accusing cinema owners of, of sabotaging it. There was a lot of debunked hot air around this title, both in terms of astroturfing. If you take a picture of an empty auditorium, you know, most auditoriums are empty at Tuesday at 2 p.m. That's that's not really telling me anything. Like, come on, give me a break. That astroturfing conversation was a load of bull. At the same time, the notion 
that movie theaters were anything but extremely supportive of this title is not only a bunch of bull, it's insane. It is just, it's a dumb thing to say. So I think there was a political conversation, which was the dumbest conversation to have about this movie. I think kind of over flying over this title like a cloud of smog that I think distracted from the grassroots success of this title. Now, of course, when producers and stars of the film kind of lean into that controversy to help promote it, yeah, that's where I say, well, you know, that's probably a little bit disingenuous or more than a little bit disingenuous, but we can't say the same about the distributor. The distributor Angel Studios, I think, went far and above in clarifying things, saying, hey, we're getting nothing but support from our theatrical partners, supporting independent theater owners, and working very closely with major chains to make sure that this would hit as many moviegoers as they could. And I think that was reciprocated by and large. The honorable mention for biggest box office surprise of the year. Now, when I say Taylor Swift, the heiress tour is a box office surprise, you might say how? Of course it was going to hit. But this isn't the movie that was on the schedule at the beginning of the year. This wasn't the movie that was on the schedule in February or March. This was a movie that ended up on the schedule after there was a strike, after movies like Dune Part 2, after movies like Craven the Hunter, after movies like the Ghostbusters Afterlife sequel were moved out of the release calendar. That is when AMC came in, built a groundbreaking new partnership with Taylor Swift herself to directly put this out in theaters. And what they could have done, and I'm glad they didn't, I think this was a, a great, great decision that the team at AMC uh, did along with their distribution partners over at Variance, they didn't make it exclusive to AMC. This was open to any movie theater that wanted to book this title. That's why I call this an honorable mention and biggest box office surprise of the year, because this movie came to just fall right outside the top 10. It's the number 11 earner of 2023 at the domestic box office, and it was nowhere near the radar. It happened because the industry wanted it to happen, because exhibition put the effort in it happening. And this is a direct lesson from the pandemic. When you cannot rely on studios to put out content, you rely on yourself and you make that accessible to your partners. That's exactly what happened here. It was very secret that this was was going on and, and the terms of it. You know, I think that that it's a part of the longer, it's part of the larger conversation around the evolution of event cinema, which it feels weird to call this event cinema because it was so huge and it obviously had a long run. But there was like, you you know, not playing during, during the weekdays and having, you know, limits in terms of if, what it would run. I mean, this is something that con- traditionally concert films are event cinema. And further in 2023, Daniel, to what you were saying, if we're not going to get studio content, we need to go out and do content of our own and make things that maybe would not have gotten the screens that it would have gotten in the past, make them into a bigger deal. Uh, We saw that with Fathom Events getting into specialty distribution with The Blind, definitely event cinema on the the faith-based side with things like The Chosen. We're seeing a big evolution there that I I think Taylor Swift, Theris Tours is maybe like the macro Godzilla version of it. But it's interesting to see what kind of happens in the polls between that in the coming year, you know, in between the one or two night only TCM, you know, classics release and Taylor Swift. So, yeah, I mean, to sum this section up, it it does sound weird to say that something like the highest earning concert tour of the year was also the biggest box office surprise of the year. But we do have to contextualize it in the in the sense that we had never seen something like this before. 
in terms of content. And we had never seen something like this before in terms of exhibitions stepping up and just going at it on their own at this scale. That's why our honorable mention for the biggest box office surprise of the year is Taylor Swift, The Heiress Tour. What was more of a surprise this year as we go over these accolades that, that we're bringing up is the theatrical distributor of the year. As we record this, it's a neck and neck race between Disney, which has been the highest earning studio for years and years and years, both domestically and globally, and Universal to actually surpass Disney's performance at the domestic box office. By the end of the year, my money is on Universal catching up and exceeding Disney with close to $2 billion or maybe around that mark. And that's why I have to say that the theatrical distributor of 2023, my choice on this is Universal, starting with the success of the Super Mario Brothers movie at the, as the number two film of the year domestically. But there are a lot of titles here, including Oppenheimer, that not only performed well, but overperformed beyond the ceiling that we have for these titles. Well, they kicked off the year with Megan. I mean, that was a trailer that came out kind of near the end of 2022. Five Nights at Freddy's, I mean, open to what, 85 million when it went, uh, you know, day and date on streaming. And yeah, like you said uh, earlier in, in this episode, Daniel, Oppenheimer is a much tougher marketing lift than something like Barbie, which has a, like a built-in... I mean, it was already marketing. It's a built-in marketing hook. You know, we definitely saw along the way some stumbles, uh, certainly. Things like The Last Voyage of the Demeter, things like maybe The Exorcist Believer. Russ, from your perspective, what's your take on Universal's 2023? I mean, it's clearly strong. I think that, uh, you know, the fast question, like, that's a big stumble. That, uh, that series in general has been mishandled, I think, over the last couple of years, and they've um, allowed themselves to lose the thread of what made that set of movies appealing to people. And I'm curious to see if they are recalibrating that at all, or if they're just going to, you know, keep the pedal down and go forward uh, to something like a finish line with what they're doing next. But clearly the partnership with Illumination is one of the best business deals that Universal has ever made. You know, Super Mario Brothers, huge deal. And then, yeah, the, I think that they did very well by Christopher Nolan. I think Nolan did well by them. What we saw with Oppenheimer reflects, I think, Universal trying to actively learn lessons from what Warner Brothers did with Tenet and how Warner Brothers worked with Nolan over his last couple of movies in general. And, you know, it's it's bold that they went forward with that movie, you know, to give that specific movie a big summer marketing campaign is not the thing that a lot of studios would have done. They wouldn't have even necessarily do it for a filmmaker, you know, who has the recognizance factor of Christopher Nolan. It's notable. It's a big deal. And the movie benefited from it. Everybody benefited from it. So that's a really smart move. The fact that a movie like Oppenheimer can gross $326 million domestically is something that we really, really have to highlight. You don't see that in today's industry. I'm not sure you saw that 15 years ago. And it's not just a domestic conversation. For a dialogue-driven three-hour-long drama set in the 1940s, this movie made nearly a billion dollars worldwide, over $950 million globally. 
This is a marketing success. This is, I think, commercial success, a critical success. Nothing but good things to say about that performance on Oppenheimer. The film itself, I mean, wasn't, I'm probably in the minority. I wasn't a huge fan of the film. I think in the world of dialogue-driven three-hour-long movies, the one to watch this year is Anatomy of a Fall that won the Palme d'Or uh, at Cannes earlier this year. Can I ask what format you saw Oppenheimer in? I saw that IMAX 70 millimeter film and there were issues in the, in the projection of it. I do have to say that I, I saw it, it the way I really wanted to see it 70 millimeter IMAX. And I was underwhelmed by the projection of it and my screening. I wasn't alone in that. I think if you checked Twitter around release week, a lot of folks were saying, Hey, you know, there, there's something wrong. With- I didn't get to see it 70 millimeter film, but I did skip seeing it on film because I didn't have confidence in my local theater, which does not regularly run film. So it was kind of like, you know, I'm going to see a digital IMAX because that is a format that the theaters around me do regularly project. I don't want to put this kind of like big one-time experience in the hands of projectionists who either don't work regularly or, you know, are not used to the format. So yeah, I moved away from that. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of folks had, had that experience in, in finding the best format to see a movie. I think that's another conversation that Oppenheimer brought on. What format are you seeing it in? We usually don't have that conversation around summer movies, around movies in general. But it's part of that evolving cinema-goer mentality where cinema-goers are saying, I want to see this in Dolby. I need to see this in IMAX. I want to see this on film. It's really interesting to, to see how as film becomes less of a monoculture and more part of uh, an entertainment diet, People are being selective down to the seating and, and concessions of each film. The other thing about Universal, and you know, Rebecca kind of got into this a little bit, but I do just very pointedly want to call out my appreciation for them as a home for genre movies. You know, and they're a home for genre movies because those movies do very well for Universal. It's it's not like altruistic on the studio's part, but the partnership with Blumhouse, which is you know, if you were, for instance, a fan of The Exorcist, the original Exorcist is maybe not always the creatively the partnership you want, but I think it does very well for Universal. And I think that by and large, they're very savvy about the way that they leverage and release those movies. And I'm glad that they exist. You know, I'm glad that that partnership keeps giving us like weirdo genre movies like Megan. They're giving you the type of movies that other studios aren't releasing the same number. Of, right? They, or maybe if they are releasing that type of movie, they're not giving it the same marketing support. I think that's precisely behind the success of Universal is that diversity. And it's a diversity in Slate that because they don't have superhero movies, they're, they're kind of forced to go into. The other, I think, honorable mention here in terms of distributor of the year, it comes more in the grassroots world of new distributors coming in finding content that works for audience pockets and maximizing that audience niche. I am, of course, talking about Angel Studios, very much a newcomer to this type of conversation, but not to this type of movie. This year, 2023, was the year when Angel Studios walked into the mainstream. We don't talk about them as an audience segment anymore. We talk about Angel Studios as a multiplex distributor. And that's why, for me, Angel Studios is the honorable mention for distributor of the year. I do have my question there is, you know, Sound of Freedom obviously made a huge splash. It generated a lot of conversations. It made a lot of money. They released two more movies after that this year that in their own respective ways did fine, but did not 
create the same conversations, do not have the same level of presence. I understand they're very different films. My question ultimately is about the value of specifically like the pay it forward campaign that they used with Sound of Freedom, how that helped that movie in a way that may not be repeatable. You know, remember that was only that that was not the first time they used that campaign. That was the second time because there was also his only son that came out early in 2023 is when they kind of that was the first one they did it on a smaller scale and it works. So you, you know, they I, I think the fact that they didn't do it on the subsequent films, you know, they're not not, not trying to do it on everything. And I think that speaks to what Russ is, is saying. You're right, Rebecca, that there is a precedent for that type of model within this studio. But what Russ is saying, I think, is true in that we are giving this accolade based mostly out of the strength of Sound of Freedom and a very innovative, and I also agree, I'm not sure you can repeat that model to that extent of success again in that release pattern in terms of putting it on Jalovic Fourth Weekend, having that paired forward campaign. But also, to be fair, I don't think we'd be talking about Warner Brothers the way we're talking about Warner Brothers without the outsized lightning in a bottle success of Barbie. And we especially aren't going to be talking about Warner Brothers in that way if they decide to make four Barbie movies a year or if there's like a Polly Pocket and Mighty Max franchise bookending Barbie 2. I think, you know, there's, there's ways where this can go wrong. I think... Angel Studios is making the type of movies that don't have to sell out, but usually overperform if you give them the chance. I do find it interesting that they're, uh, you know, they're going across a variety of genres. We have Sound of Freedom, which is more of a kind of globe-trotting drama, and then they had the documentary, and then they had, uh, I think, coming up more of a historical uh, drama set in uh, set in New York in the 19th century. I think. Yeah, I mean, they're the runner-up for Theatrical Market of the Year. I don't feel like they... Let's see Let's see them not reach Sound of Freedom level success because I think that's an unreasonable expectation to put on them, just like it's an unreal expectation, you know, to say, oh, Warner Brothers has to put out a Barbie every year and have it reach that level. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see where they go in, uh, in 2024 and beyond. They're performing at a mid-major level at the box office. And they're doing so with films that you're right. There are audience segments that are not going to see the type of movie that Angel Studios puts up. They're just not. But what's important is that the sizable number of people that do want to see movies like the ones that Angel Studios puts out, Angel Studios is activating and engaging that audience. And that's and that was the failed promise of the faith-based title, is that there wasn't a way to crack the theatrical marketing in a way that you could activate the existing audience. Forget the crossover audience. Like we said, we got that in Sound of Freedom, but that's really hard to rely on consistently. But as long as you can hit that base audience, the way that, that Angel Studios is consistently hitting that base audience, I think is a very, very positive story for theatrical exhibition. Let's go over to the box office disappointments of the year, unfortunately. I like to open with the good news, but there was a good share of bad news. Now, I want to be clear to our audience, I'm not going to look at movies that made $170, $175 million, like Indiana Jones, like Mission Impossible, and say they're disappointments or flops. They're not. We might have had different expectations for different reasons for these movies, but there is no way you can tell me that a movie that performs at that level is a disappointment. What we do have to bring in are titles that really, really didn't perform anywhere near a successful level. 
And maybe it's a little bit unfair to single out the Marvels. I think this is a year where there's a lot of movies that you can bring in and you can single out as this is the biggest box office disappointment of the year. But unfortunately, with where the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, with the prior performance of Captain Marvel, I know there's a lot of caveats here. I know there's a lot of asterisks, but we cannot possibly see the performance of the Marvels as something other than absolutely disastrous and the low point not only for MCU, but for Disney in a number of years. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with that. It's a pretty dire result. And uh, I don't know, I, I have a lot of questions about why they marketed that movie the way that they did. The strike is the answer to that question. Because this is the biggest movie released at a global scale during the strike. The strike is is part of the answer, certainly. Not being able to get talent out in front of that movie is a huge problem. I also feel like they, you know, they did a lot to try to kind of sell the Marvels as a one-off, like, fun little romp, which maybe in the long run was the wrong way to go. Because right at the end, they sort of pivoted to selling it as more of, like, you know, this is a thing that really follows up on Endgame and blah, blah, blah. There's, you know, a big reveal, et cetera. Including footage from Endgame in the in the second batch of trailers, which, I mean, that definitely felt like they were trying to course correct, but it was... Yeah, yeah. That but I mean, I also wonder about some of the other decisions that Disney made overall throughout the year. Like, I think everybody can agree that releasing Indiana Jones at Cannes was a bad idea. A month of bad press. That's what it was. It's a one solid month of awful headlines around your movie. That's a huge risk. They killed that movie, and it was it was a big mistake to do that. I understand why they did it, but I think it was definitely the wrong choice for that movie. And it built a mountain of sort of negative word of mouth that they couldn't climb over. But yeah, the Marvels clearly... You know, there was a big issue with the Marvels. The strike was part of it, but the strike is not all of it. And it just connects back to all the stuff we've already said about Marvel in general. And these are things that we've been saying for a while, Russ. If you go back to the 2023 preview episode that came out in January of this year, we taped that in, you know, at tail end of 2022, we expressed a lot of things that came into fruition. We said, hey, Disney is a high floor, low ceiling studio right now. They prioritized Disney+. Plus. We're seeing the effects of that. We weren't sure how Wish was going to perform as an animated title released in a corridor where Encanto didn't work and where Strange World didn't work. We said that at the beginning of the year. We said, you know what? We're really worried about how Wish is going to perform. How are these superhero movies going to do? You very wisely said in that episode, Russ, you predicted that the highest grossing superhero movie of the year was going to be Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And that's exactly what happened. Guardians ends up being the number four release of 2023 domestically. That's exactly what happened. But beyond that, a lot of the structural issues we thought the studio would have, they had. And one of the things that Russ also said in that episode was that he didn't think that the Marvels was going to keep that summer release date. He thought it was going to get pushed to the fall. And that ended up being part of its undoing because leaving that summer release date going into the fall means that they were hampered in promoting it a little bit better. The studio really tied their hands. You're right, Russ. A lot of the existing structural problems were still there. We're always going to be there. But I do wonder just how much more it would have performed had it kept that summer release date. We're not jumping on Disney and their, particularly their family-oriented titles just for the sake of 
doing that, but I do think it's something that is is curious to look at, given the fact that they have uh, announced that they're going to be releasing some of these direct-to-streaming Pixar titles, re-releasing them in theaters, Soul, Luca, and I believe Turning Red, re-releasing them in theaters in Q1 of 2024. We don't know how much they're going to make. It's it's difficult to hazard a guess when this is really a first-of-its-kind sort of thing, but it does make you wonder, at least with the animation side of the equation, are they turning a corner? Did they realize we prioritized streaming, we prioritized Disney Plus too late? We need that theatrical presence to lead to downstream revenue into the streaming world. It's necessary. And I think we've seen that like with streamers, for example, like, you know, the using the theatrical release almost as part of a marketing campaign. Hopefully it's a lesson they've learned. I think the long legs for movies like Elemental, for Encanto, for The Little Mermaid are all indicative of the fact that there's still an audience for these Disney movies. But again, I think that like you suggest to a certain point, I think it is a Disney plus effect. You know, I have a four and a half year old child. I talk to a lot of parents with kids all the time. If you've got a couple of kids, you know, are you going to pay for a babysitter for your youngest, you know, that you can't take to the theater, but you're going to take the one who wants to go see Wish are you going to fully buy in on all this stuff theatrically or are you going to wait six weeks for Disney plus when, if they like the movie, they're just going to rewatch it on Disney plus all the time. Anyway, my answer is you're probably going to wait for Disney plus, especially now, you know, theatrical is still one of the most affordable entertainment options, but everything is more expensive. And the best example of that point for us, I think comes with a success in terms of families for Taylor Swift, the heiress tour. If you wanted to see the Taylor Swift Eras Tour, you have to shell out hundreds of dollars for terrible seats, thousands for somewhat good seats. And that's if you had the option to buy them at all. At all. Yeah. And for many folks, they needed to drive to a big city, maybe a hotel stay. It was extremely unaffordable for many fans that wanted to have that Taylor Swift experience tour. And theatrical coming in and making it as an affordable alternative for people all over the world to go to their hometown cinema and experience that, that I think highlights the power of what theatrical can bring. That's the positive side of the price equation where theatrical will always win. When you lose is when you start playing with the value proposition on content. And that's exactly what Disney Plus did. They played with the pricing proposition. They confused audience expectations on where premium content is going to be and where the best place to enjoy it is. They're paying the price now. But again, this is all things that we said in last year's episode. We knew this was coming. The reason that I'm bringing up the Marvels as singling it out as the number one box office disappointment of the year is because we knew Blue Beetle wasn't going to be a huge movie. We knew it was going to be awkwardly positioned as a lame duck film. We knew with this lame duck DCEU uh, classification that, that you introduced in last year's episode, Russ, that Aquaman would limp to the finish line. We knew that the Flash, we didn't even know if the Flash was going to come out. There was a point where you kind of felt where Warner Brothers had to take it out to theaters because they had spent so much money on it. But I don't think any of us expected the Flash to overperform. We didn't expect it to perform the way it did, as poorly as it did, but no one thought The Flash was going to be a hit. But for the Marvels to go from Captain Marvel being a $1.1 billion movie to the Marvels being a $200 million movie, 
That's a massive, massive alarm. An alarm that, that goes beyond the concerns we have across every studio on superhero movies, whether it's Warner Brothers with the DC universe or with what we might see next year with Sony and the Spider-Man without Spider-Man universe. We were supposed to see this Kraven the Hunter movie. We didn't. We know that the Spider-Verse is working, but that's very different. Spider-Man, there's many Spider-Men in it. You go from an animated version of Spider-Man that has all the Spider-Mans in the world to one that has no Spider-Men. It's going to be really tricky to see how that gets settled in 2024. Disney isn't the only party that is suffering on the superhero front. But I do think they are responsible for by far, by far the biggest disappointment of the year. And it also came at a point in the calendar where nothing big was getting released. Dune got pushed. Craven the Hunter got pushed. Every other studio didn't want to deal with it. Taylor Swift was performing well. Marvels came in and I commend Disney for putting it out in a time when theaters needed that movie to come out. But that movie simply didn't work. The honorable mention here that I have to say, because everything I've heard about this movie is that it's a great movie that just didn't get seen. The second place prize for the biggest disappointment at the box office isn't because the movie's bad. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is a movie that I think should have found a larger audience. I'm not sure this is the best forum to go into why it didn't work, but we were just talking about the potential of faith-based titles, of crossover audiences, of how Lionsgate has been able to connect with audiences, with the Hunger Games and John Wick movies. Oh, man, I just really wish Are You There, God, Margaret? Maybe it's not a $100 million movie. could have been an $80 million movie. It shouldn't have been as... Uh, as big of a disappointment as it was. I think this is a movie where for the next 20 years, periodically the title's going to come up and people who weren't around really caring about stuff at the time are going to be like, why didn't they make more money? Because it's a good movie. It's a good adaptation. Everybody's good in it, et cetera. I mean, the, for me, the answer, it's not a simple answer, but I think that's a very tough movie to sell. And I think it's very difficult to convince people why they want to see that movie, and that it's going to be good. And they they didn't manage to do that. Again, that's a very difficult task. And you would like to think that the generational familiarity with the title is going to be enough, and it wasn't. And, you know, could somebody else have sold that movie in a way that convinced more audiences to go? I genuinely don't know. I do think that the bonus is going to be that it's that movie's going to stick around and people are going to continue to watch that film. And I think it's going to build an audience over time. And let's close up this conversation by going over our favorite movies and movie going moments of the year. But before we get to that point, I do want to bring up the movies that we were most excited to see this year based on last year's podcast episode. I'll start with Russ. Russ, the movies that you mentioned were Dune 2. You got to wait. Sorry, that's coming out in March. Killers of the Flower Moon, The Killer, and Evil Dead Rise. Let's take out Dune 2 from the equation. Were you able to catch any of the latter three in theaters or at home? What was your take on those? I was not able to catch them in theaters, unfortunately. And at this point, I've only seen Evil Dead Rise. I've had uh, The Killer and Killers of the Flower Moon on deck here for weeks at this point. And honestly, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, when can my wife and I sync up our schedules enough that we can watch these movies that we both want to watch together? So yeah, you know, life is unpredictable, man. 
Especially with a kid, I, I hear you now. Finding the time to watch these—I don't things even have having a kid as an excuse for why I know there are going to be some movies <laughs> that I'm I'm terrified in advance. And Rebecca, talking about summer movies, you had three summer movies on your list of movies you were most excited to catch. Well, Stray's one of them. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, all right, all right. Oppenheimer, and Barbie. I was terrified. I was like, oh my God, did I did I mention three films and then I didn't get out to see any of them because I don't even have a kid as an excuse? <laughs> um, no, no, I did uh, I did go out and, and see all three of those. Barbie, I think I would count that as among my favorite movie-going experiences of the year. Not really for anything to do with the film per se, but my, uh, just as, as your year was, uh, your summer was dominated by a new child. Mine was dominated by a big move that was complicated and horrible and I never want to do it again. But as a result, I got to uh, discover some new theaters, went to the Kew Gardens cinema for the first time, and I just fell in love with the cinema. It's, it's one of those old school, I think it even was sloped floors, mural of uh, Rodney Dangerfield on, on one of the outside walls. What more can you ask for? Yeah, I mean, on my end, the the three that I listed as the four, actually, that I listed as my most anticipated movies of the year, uh, I was able to catch all of them in theaters. Killers of the Flower Moon, I saw Scream 6. I was really excited to see that. I was a little bit disappointed by that, by the direction that ended up taking. Of course, Scream 7 being completely retooled after the two leads have exited. I'm very curious to see how Paramount reworks that franchise moving forward. Creed 3, I was, I don't know, I'm still kind of like on the fence on. Creed 3 is one of the weirder Rocky movies uh, or Rocky universe movies that have come out. Interesting, uh, which is more than I can say. It's, you know, it's, movie as long like as it's not formulaic, it's fine. Rocky solving the Cold War and Creed 3 was one of the... Yeah, there's like weirdest. child abuse that's like heavily hinted had a sexual element in this one. There's a weird anime-inspired fight sequence at the end. Listen, it's different. It was very different than anything I'd seen in terms of Rocky movies. And when you talk about a very formulaic franchise with... Uh, very scriptable peaks and valleys. This was something that I didn't see coming. So it was interesting for me to see that. But the movie that I was really excited to see that ended up being my movie going moment of the year was John Wick Chapter 4. I went to the Alamo Draft House in Lower Manhattan. It was nearly three hours long, this John Wick sequel. I loved it. And I probably went through like three courses in terms of like a full-on meal, four beers, two cocktails. I mean, it was just... A gluttonous dining cinema treat while while having a great time watching this like epic action movie on screen. That had to be my movie going moment of the year in a very weird year, guys. I don't know how you feel. As we walked into this year, there were movies from filmmakers that I love that I was very excited to see. Those movies ended up disappointing me personally, even though there's people that, that really vouch for those titles. I'll rattle out the filmmakers of that, that I love, that I really wasn't convinced by their work this year. Michael Mann didn't love Ferrari. The new Koreeda uh, title, Hirokazu Koreeda, his title Monster, I didn't think was his best. Kelly Reichardt, I know showing up is showing up in a lot of top 10 lists. It didn't show up on mine. Wes Anderson with a very divisive title in Asteroid City. There's people that love it. There's people that don't like it as much. Emerald Fennel with probably one of the most divisive movies of the year in Saltburn. I am on the con side of that pro and con conversation. Michel Franco's uh, memory. I like Franco. Didn't really love him taking that route into melodrama in an award season title that's actually in theaters right now. Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. We were talking about that title. A lot of people are loving it. 
It reminded me a lot of the struggles that Scorsese had in adapting Gangs of New York, going into a period piece, going into a book that's very dense, that goes in a lot of different directions and trying to chisel out a narrative that works on a feature film. I'm not sure it does that successfully, although it's, a, you know, I think, in, in many regards, a great movie. And uh, Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid, again, an extremely divisive movie that was made by Ari Aster, knowing that it was going to be, have a, a very divisive reaction to it. And at the same time, there are reaction films that I was completely in the back for. Yorgos Lantimos' Poor Things, which is as big of an anti-audience film as I can ever imagine having a Disney association with it being released through Searchlight, which is uh, the specialty arm of Disney. I still can't believe that uh, they would release something, a three-hour-long movie with that much graphic sex and medical gore. But I'm glad they did, and I actually loved every second of it. It's a weird movie in terms of really interesting... So it's been a really weird year in terms of very compelling and interesting filmmakers making divisive movies. And that's not a bad thing. That's one of my big takeaways this year. It's not a bad thing that you're having really weird titles that some people love and some people hate. It's something that we've been calling for the longest time. And yeah, sometimes you have to pay the price in terms of box office. But I come out in 2023 with a very short list of titles that I loved, but a lot of titles are going to be in my head for a long time. It's interesting in the year of Barbie and Oppenheimer, which is almost like uh, two titles of supreme consensus, you know, that maybe the more characteristic thing about this year is exactly what you just described. These people making very divisive, unusual, polarizing movies, you know, and we're probably going to see more of those going into next year. But I think my main complaint is that I haven't had the chance to see a lot of those films yet. You know, Poor Things isn't here yet. Part of the reason I haven't seen The Killer yet is... uh, I killed off my Netflix subscription and the movie didn't play here theatrically. So I had no... And there's a reason why it's not a movie that people aren't talking about more. When you talk about a movie that could have really found maybe an audience in theaters, David Fincher's The Killer on paper looks like that. But I don't know, I'll I'll let you watch the movie without me shedding too much into it. But add David Fincher's The Killer in the list of movies that some people really like. And at least for me, didn't work. Didn't work, totally. I did see The Boy and the Heron last night and loved it, had a great time with it, had a really good time talking about it afterwards, where after a couple hours, I'm sort of like, okay, I think I have a pretty good reading of this movie, Lockdown, but it's uh, still subject to evolve and change. Hopefully, as I I saw the the English dub, I'm hopefully going to see it subtitled at some point, but that may have to wait for a a disc release. I think we're going to look back on 2023 as a year where a lot of established filmmakers took risks in the movies they made and didn't make movies to find a mass audience. And you nailed it, Russ, when you said it's very weird in a year where you have critical consensus with both Barbie and Oppenheimer to have a lot of other very renowned filmmakers make movies that very much made titles that weren't looking for critical consensus, very much made titles uh, consciously that were looking to divide audiences. And I think when we look back on this year, we won't be talking about the 8.5 whatever billion. We're going to be talking about the movies that we can't believe these filmmakers put out and how interesting that was. Well, guys, thank you so much for uh, joining me for this long, long, long episode of the Box Office Podcast. Happy end of year to everyone listening. And don't forget to tune in next week for our 2024 preview episode. Thank you so much for joining us. The Box Office Podcast is produced by the Box Office Company, Box Office Pro and Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you again in 2024.